Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sydney Town Hall for this very special evening with Richard Osman. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Writers' Festival, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So, outside of the Sydney Writers' Festival season in May, it's so exciting when we get together to hear from people like Richard Osman. He's a UK author, producer, television presenter. He's come to his record-breakingly successful career as a novelist from a long career in television, where as the creative producer of Endemol, he was behind many of the TV shows that we, as well as those in Great Britain, enjoy and watch. The producer of things like Eight Out of Ten Cats Does Countdown. I'm hoping that the, our interpreters had fun doing that. <laughs> He's the creator and former co-presenter of the legendary BBC quiz Pointless and, of course, the presenter of Richard Osman's House of Games. His three novels... The Thursday Murder Club, The Man Who Died Twice and The Bullet That Missed have multi-million, multi-million copy sales all around the world. The Last Devil to Die, published in September just a couple of months ago, has followed in their path. Um, and so it's a really unusual... We have Welcoming Richard here is an incredibly unusual uh, uh, writing phenomenon. Um, and I want you to join me in welcoming him to Sydney. I mean, that is a shameless T-shirt, isn't it? <laughs> it cost me 19 bucks in a tourist shop, but it was worth it. <laughs> well, I'm worried if that's the case. I'm worried about what might happen under the lights. Um, as you can see, Sydney is in the grip of Osmania. So it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming. Woo! I want to start off by asking you to tell us about your sense of yourself as a writer. You're someone who's been working with words mm-hmm. your whole career. Why did you want to write a novel? And what was it like to step into that different form? Well, I've always written. And, you know, even in my TV career, I was doing sitcom and things like that. Um, but writing a novel is so difficult. Oh, my God, it takes a long time. And it's like hard, it's like a marathon. So I'd, I'd started novels a few times over the years. So I was always going to do one eventually. Uh, and then I got to the stage where actually most of my career was TV presenting rather than TV producing. Yeah. And TV presenting, don't tell anyone, is the single easiest job in the entire world. You literally sit there, you talk for a bit until someone says stop talking and, and someone brings you lunch. Right. So I felt I wasn't working to my maximum capacity sometime in my late 40s. And so actually that's when I started another novel. And this one took, so I had the idea, which I, and I thought if I get this right, I think it's a nice idea. Uh, and I got to the stage where I'd written kind of 20,000 words. And at that point, however painful it is to write a novel, I thought it was going to be more painful to stop writing. 
And so I took the lesser of two evils and, 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 and wrote it. And I'm, I'm very glad I did, because look at us now. <laughs> so why was it crime that you stepped into in that way? Well, because, you know, I, 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 I've been to prison for so long, and I just thought... <laughs> It's, You've uh, had to make the most of it. Yeah, exactly that. So I thought some good has got to come out of this. No, I, 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 love, read, I love reading crime. And yes. in my TV career, I always try to make TV shows that I would watch. Uh, and if I'm writing, of course, I'm going to write a book that I would read. Because then you're never having to second-guess yourself. You're never having to sort of go, I wonder what people would like. I just think, what would I like? Uh, and fortunately, I was, I was born with extremely mainstream tastes. That's... Uh, <laughs> which is, uh, honestly, I've found infinitely monetizable for many, many years now. I mean, it's, it's uncool, but, it, but it's lucrative. That's the... And so, yeah, I just, I just wrote the thing that I, you know, I was sort of looking for a novel that was a, a bit... I, I couldn't quite find the novel that I was looking for, which is like a proper sort of Agatha Christie, but with, you know, a little bit of wit and about the modern day and stuff like that. And I, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe if I'd like this, then other people would... Um, but yes, I, when I finished it, though, I, did, I, I thought, ah, oh, this, is, this is really bad. This is... Because you know, I was thinking, oh, I'll try and write a novel that no one's written before. And then when you do that, you think, oh, no one's written this before. And there, there must be a reason. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, you know, it, it turns out that the thing that I was looking for is something that other people were looking for as well. So... Crime writing and certainly, you know, Agatha Christie, as you mentioned, and those other golden age crime writers um, have acquired a whole set of rules and genres and subgenres and precedents. And it seems to me that you throw them away and or double down. What, what, were there things that you particularly wanted to avoid or emulate? No, and it was all subconscious because when you're... You know, they always say, if you want to be a writer, read. And, and it's the complete truth. So I was just writing a story that I wanted to write and had these characters that I really wanted to explore. And so there are times when you're writing a first novel where you think, well, what happens now? And you think, oh, well, what would happen in an Agatha Christie book? I'll write that. Uh, and there are times when you're on the sort of a third novel where you think, I want to do this. And you think, oh, no, I think that's, sort of, that's a bit too Agatha Christie. So you get to, if you know the rules, if you know the tropes, when they're useful to you, you can use them. And when they're not, you, you don't have to use them. But yeah, I, I sort of, I, w- I was sort of fumbling blindly through the first book. But having read so much, there was always any problem I would get to, I would think, oh, Agatha Christie can solve this, or Ian Rankin can solve this, or, you know, Val McDermott will solve this one for me. Um, I've yet to give them a penny in royalties, but uh, they were. <laughs> so please don't tell, especially Ian, don't tell Ian Rankin I said that. <laughs> He will be, he's notoriously litigious. <laughs> well, uh, still alive, which is the start of, of potentially causing trouble. <laughs> this is it. Wow. Okay. He's Sir Ian Rankin now. That's something to aim for, isn't it? So that first book, The Thursday Murder Club, you wrote it quietly, mm. not talking about it, quasi in secret. Yes. Who were your first readers and how did they respond? Well, that's it. I did, Basically, I wrote it without telling anybody I was doing it. And nobody... Well, I told a few people I was doing it, but nobody read it. Nobody read it. And, you know, I like to think it's because I, I like my friends and there's nothing worse than when a friend of yours is writing a novel. And they go, yeah, I'm writing a novel. Would you like to read a chapter? Think, oh, no. 
I mean, that's either it's brilliant, in which case, oh, that's annoying, uh, or it's terrible, in which case you have to go, I, I thought there was, was a lot so of good stuff in there. I really, <laughs> I think you have a unique style. Um, yeah, um, don't send me another chapter. Wait till the end, because I just really, you know, I want to read it all in one go. So anyway, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. Uh, that's the point. Uh, and then when I got to the end of it, I still didn't really show anyone. I sent it to one agent who I dealt with about five years previously when I was doing uh, 101, the 101 most pointless facts in the world, which was like a, you know, a pointless kind of spin-off book. Uh, and she'd been so great, and I, I knew she represented good people, so I sent her this thing. I just said, look, oh, I've written a book. <sighs> I'm so sorry. But I thought, <laughs> but professionally, she has to read it, okay? She can't do the excuse of saying, oh, I can't, oh, I can't at the moment because I'm quite busy with work. You think, that is your work. That is your work. You have to read it. Uh, so I sent it to her, and literally the next morning, she sent it, sent, uh, she sent it back. She said, this is terrible. <laughs> so I went to another agent, and no, so she sent it back, and she just said uh, that I think this is great. I think there's really something in it. Um, and I said, look, if I wasn't on TV, would you still like it? She said, if this came on my submissions pile, I would ask you in for a meeting, and I'd want to represent you. Uh, so I thought, oh, that's good. Uh, and then within a week it was out to you know, publishers and we had an auction, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. There was no gavel involved, but it was, uh, yeah. Um, and so literally from that moment, sending to the very first person, um, that, that this kind of weird merry-go-round has, has never stopped. That's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's annoying. I'm so sorry. It is annoying. <laughs> but no. imagine if it happened to one of your friends. That would be worse. That would be worse, wouldn't it? Imagine seeing one of you, imagine seeing Bill up here sort of spousing off this nonsense. You'd be furious. Well, also, you have to remember that we are all here because we have really enjoyed the books. So we're very happy that they're out. Not the everyone. Lot. A few people have been dragged along by partners. Do you think? Yeah, come on. You know you have. <laughs> You're going, oh, not this Thursday murder nonsense again. Come on. <gasps> and I say to those people... There we go. Well, also, there may be people here in the audience who are confused because since the publication of the Thursday Murder Club, every crime novel emulates the cover. So they might have been reading, you know, they might have been reading something completely different. I mean, sometimes I pick up a book and go, I've written another one. <laughs> wow, let me look at this. Yeah, this is extraordinary. The guy who did our front cover is a guy called Richard Bravery. Who's, um, isn't that a good name, Richard Bravery? Yeah. If ever I write an SAS book, that's going to be my uh, pseudonym. Um, Dick Bravery, I should call him. <laughs> I don't call him that, but I should call him that. Um, Have you met Dick Bravery, anybody? Yeah, so he did that cover. Do you know what? I'm writing another book next year, like a, a non-Thursday Murder Club book. And we had our first meeting this week about what the cover's going to look like. And the idea is, you know, copy this one, you fuckers. That was our... Uh, that was you're going to invent a completely new genre. I apologise to the signer for... Uh... <laughs> um, so you talked about how mainstream tastes are helpful professionally. Um, this having this sense, which obviously you've also, you know, honed through work in television and... and, and uh, for understanding what audiences respond to and what, what audiences are interested in. How much do you think about audience when you're writing? 
nonstop is the truth. I mean, it's, it, it's never at the front of my mind. It's always at the back of my mind. And always on television, I will always, even when I'm doing pointless, I will say, well done if you got that at home. Because what is it that we're doing when we're making a television program? We're literally talking to people who are in their house, hopefully trying to be entertained. And that's so I never, I never, ever forget it. And if I'm writing, I'm always thinking about the reader. Always. Because it doesn't exist otherwise. I'm not one of those people who says that I'm going to create a sort of great work of literature, you know, sort of cut into granite that will exist forever. What I'm trying to do is entertain. Uh, and that has to be through people who are reading. And the lovely thing with crime fiction is there are so many things we all take as standard. So if I'm writing a crime story, you know there's going to be a murder. That is not a spoiler for the, for the next book. The next book starts with a murder. Literally, the first thing that happens is a murder. You know there's a murder, and you know at the end it's going to be solved. That's the basic rule. And there's a million different ways of sort of cutting that up and, 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 and changing it around. Uh, but in between those two points, that's where you entertain. That's where you go. We all know where we are. Like at the quiz show, you know at question one that someone's going to win at the end. Okay, we know that's what's happening. And then it's do I like the contestants? You know, and can I answer the questions? And a crime novel is do I like the characters? And can I work out who did it? Uh, and you know, that's a lovely thing to have. And all the way through, it's all about the audience. It's all about the games you play. It's all about hiding those clues, because I know everyone's looking out for clues, and I enjoy hiding them in various places. You know, you know at the end you're going to find out who did it, and I will already have told you. So we already know that, and you'll be able to look back and go, oh, yes. yes. He hid it when Joyce was talking about her vacuum cleaner. He hid the clue there. <laughs> Uh, her I get vacuum it. cleaner, her microwave. Yeah, her... anything. <laughs> Essentially, if Joyce is talking about technology, then there's a clue <laughs> that, 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 uh, that you've missed. So, yeah, I, I, I always, I, honestly, uh, all I want to do is produce a book that people pick up and keep turning the pages. That's all I care about. And it sounds basic, but that's, that's what the industry is. That's what the business is. That's what television is. It's what books are. You know, I want you to be at the spot, you know, on a flight and just think this is going to make the flight pass. I want, if I go on a flight, right, I, I tend to pick up like a John Grisham book, something like that. Something where I know when I read the first page, I'm going to read through the page 400. Plucky underdog against the system, triumphing. That's a good plot. <laughs> he should use that. <laughs> and I was on a flight about 10 years ago going over to um, uh, New York, I think, and um, I was looking for a book. And there was a new John Grisham. And I said, I didn't even know there was a new John Grisham. I was so thrilled. I thought, great, this is my flight done. So I pick it up and uh, we take off and I start reading this book. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know if this is John Grisham's best work. <laughs> I think I'm not sure. And I was reading a little bit more and I realized without them telling me on the cover, he'd written a young adult book about a nine-year-old lawyer. <laughs> And that was my sole company for an entire flight to New York. If I ever see John Grisham, I'm going to have a, f a few things to say. <laughs> oh, I was so gutted. Devastating. Absolutely. Theodore Boone, it was called. I've never forgot. <laughs> I've, I've never forgotten or forgiven. So you've chosen very unconventional detectives in a number of ways, a team of four. And I want to talk to you about where those characters came from. But before we talk about them as individuals and before we talk about, more specifically, the book The Last Devil to Die, I want to ask you about the, their age, the fact that you have... You know, it's such a fascinating part of who they are and who they are as detectives. 
Can we start with why you chose these detectives heading into their 80s to be, you know, what was it that made you start there with that first book? I thought if they start at 80, I've got a long-running series ahead of me. This is, uh, <laughs> this is foolproof, is what I thought. No, it's, my, my mum lives in a retirement village and I would talk to people there and, you know, you'd hear the most extraordinary stories of what they'd done and the, the lives they've lived. Uh, and, you know, you have to recognise in the UK, and it's the same in Australia, I know, that there comes a certain age where people become invisible, right? And culturally, older people are invisible and they're sort of locked away. And they're invisible, which means they're underestimated, they're overlooked, all of those things, which make them incredible detectives because they're at a stage in their life where they've got the most to give, they've got the most up here, they've learnt the most they're ever going to learn, and no one notices them. You know, so what could be better for detectives? And that wasn't my immediate thought. My immediate thought was, I want to celebrate these incredible people. But the second I started writing it, I thought, oh, you lot can do anything. There's a, there's a point in the very first book with Elizabeth, and she's done something which is deeply against the law, because, of course, she's Elizabeth. And Chris, the cop, is saying... You, Elizabeth, you can't do this, and if you do it, you certainly can't tell me. And she goes, arrest me then. <laughs> Honestly, you arrest me, lock me up. I'm an 80-year-old woman, pick me in a cell. You know, I, I don't have any of my medication, so that, there'll be a lot of paperwork with the medication. And tomorrow, yeah, I'll go up in court and I'll pretend I think you're my grandson, see, see, see if I get away with it. And you're like, this is great. They can, get, they can do anything. And so, you know, that's, that, that's the kind of starting point. I wanted to represent that extraordinary generation who were not being represented. And then they paid me back in spades with their <laughs> attitude and their personality and what, what they were able to do for, for, for the books. And I, I found it so interesting as a, as a reader um, to, you know, like all of us, it, it's not like I'm not heading towards that direction myself. It's like... Early um, 30s, <laughs> is my, but, is my but, guess. And, and it's not that I don't have people that age in my life, but what was fascinating for me about these books was that it does make you see age differently and see those characters particularly, well, all of them in their different ways, quite differently. And it strikes me as kind of quietly revolutionary what you've done. I hope so. I do hope so, because I'm, I'm trying to pay homage to a, to a generation while also taking advantage of them. I'm trying to do both of those things. And no, honestly, and, and, and the pact I made with myself very, very early on was, look, I'm going to make them my heroes, but I've, I have to make them real. I have to make them true. I can't go, oh my God, aren't they incredible? They can do anything. I'm trying to, they have to be flawed. They have to drink too much. They have to make rash decisions. You know, Joyce has to pick terrible men all the time. So I try to make them, you know, I try, I try to make them human beings. Honestly, I, this, again, this is no spoiler. It doesn't get any better in this next book. At some point, I, at some point, she's got to find a man. But, and, but and, people, well, people say to me, you, you should let Joyce find a man. And I say, it's not me, it's Joyce. I'm not doing it. Well, I'll start, I... Listen, I'll start a scene off and I'll go, look, Joyce, here's one for you. Here's a guy. And she, she messes it up. And, she, and then I'll introduce a terrible character. She'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll have a piece of that. I, I, can't, I can't control the woman. I, I mean... I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't want to uh, question the creator here, but I do feel like towards the end of this book, without going anywhere spoilery, that mm -hmm. we might have a, see us at a glimpse of a future romance for Joyce, but, you know, we're going to have to wait yeah. to find out. Listen, I think it'll be, I think that she says, I keep barking up the wrong tree, and at, at some point I'm going to run out of trees. 
So let's talk about those wonderful four characters, uh, uh, where they came from and how you think that they've evolved over the series. I, I, I think we have to start with Elizabeth. I found her fascinating as a character because, you know, she could be the kind of person we see as detectives in, in, in various other kind of detective genre books. You know, loner, doesn't care, yeah. tough. Um, uncompromising. Uncompromising. Cold-blooded killer. <laughs> but, um, you know, we see that side of her that yeah. she brings from her past life, but also a whole lot of other things. Well, that's the joy of them being in a gang, really, is she could have turned into quite a pompous older woman is the truth and she could have sort of that wall that she put up uh, in, in front of her could have stayed there forever but you you can't be around Joyce for too long and remain pompous because Joyce won't allow it and Ron and Ibrahim in their own way they all bring her out of her shell and that's the, the the beauty of that gang is because they meet in this retirement village they probably wouldn't have met in real life any of these people they wouldn't have come across each other they wouldn't have heard anyone else's opinions of them and because they're all there they're all able to criticize each other equally which is rather lovely but it brings something out of all of them and it humanizes them and certainly elizabeth you know goes on a journey of being humanized through these books and in 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 the fourth book especially but that's in 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 the fourth book right at the beginning because it starts on boxing day you have boxing day here don't you we do I said Boxing Day in Germany. They thought I had lost my mind. <laughs> no, a, a we de, have, we a, have a Boxing Day. A day boxes. What is this day for boxes? <laughs> they, we couldn't get through the rest of the event. They were going... I'd start another anecdote and another hand would go up. I, I have to get back to the boxes. I am so sorry. <laughs> so anyway, we start this on Boxing Day. And so I, 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 I listed all the Christmas presents they each bought each other which is such a fun thing to do because then you, you sort of work out that the individual relationships between all of them and, you know, what, what, what they all mean to each other, which is a lovely... If you're writing a book, it's a, I think it's probably quite a good exercise. Well, I think it would be a good exercise in life. To buy Christmas presents. We should do that. Do you know what? We should share gifts at Christmas. That is not a bad idea. To be as thoughtful, you know, what what you're showing is the thing about people, you're showing the contrast between people who are genius gift givers and people who are, well, and the funny thing about the whole voucher kind of of thing. Exactly. But but there was something about the really special gifts that I found inspiring. Well, that's lovely. But then if you were my nan, my nan, you could think of the perfect gift you could travel halfway around the world and find her something that meant something that really you know appealed, like something from her childhood and she'd go I honestly would have preferred vouchers <laughs> you know because then I can choose what I want then I can choose it so I, I always think of my nan when anyone gives anybody uh, anyone gives anyone vouchers uh, but uh, yeah so Elizabeth yeah is, is, is very humanized and Joyce is sort of given more confidence because yeah. she, she was a, a woman whose career she would have achieved an awful lot more if she's born into a different gender or in a different era. So it's lovely to see her given confidence. Ron is pulled up all the time on his attitude and no one's ever done that before because he's got through on his belligerence and now no one here is interested. No. Uh, and Ibrahim is sort of drawn out of... You know, Ibrahim is very self-contained uh, and suddenly he's got, like a lot of psychiatrists, he's, he needs a lot of help. Uh, and it's, are, there, are there any psychiatrists in? Oh, that guy on the couch, I think he is one. Um, and, you know, they draw him out of himself. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's about finding new people who, who, who bring new things out of you, I think. 
And Joyce, of course, such an appealing character and so entertaining, this mixture of being incredibly, having these qualities that traditionally we are not valued, the kindness, yeah. the ordinariness, this kind of very much being somebody who's um, led what people would think of as an unremarkable life, but who has this strength and this is the social, you know, as at one point I, I, she, she says that, you know, it's she's the one who solves the problems, sticks people together, keeps things going. I think it's exactly that. And that, that's, that side of Joyce is based on my mother. My mother was an infant school teacher. And so is used to, you know, uh, controlling rooms. And she, she lives in this retirement village. It's full of people much posher than she is. There's people there who've been, you know, in the House of Laws and they're judges and all sorts of things. And they will argue all day about anything. And they all want to hear their voices heard. And my mum will just step in at the end and say, I wonder if we should do this. And so that's what, but she, she was telling me at one point there was a problem with their leases where they live. They all own their own properties. And there's this problem with a lease and there's three or four of them going hammer and tongs shouting at each other. And um, this old boy steps up, but he just goes, I, I'm so sorry, I've been listening. I'm very interested. I, I just wonder if I can help. Uh, you know, I, I was a member of the Law Lords and my speciality is property law. And she said, there's about three or four seconds and everyone went, sit down, sit down, mate. We don't need you. And so, you know, they just like the sound of their own voice. But my mum, you know, a nurse, an infant school teacher, they're the, they're the people who get stuff done in life. My mum, by the way, said to me, she said, in this retirement village, she said, everybody here thinks you based Elizabeth on me. I'm like, I based, I based Joyce on you. I didn't base Elizabeth on me. I don't know. Which, it raises the question, what is she up to when I'm not around? What is she doing in that village? Well, this is this thing, you know, who really knows their who, parents? Who really knows? Who really knows? She said she was an infant's teacher. Oh, hold on a minute. She, she did often pack a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it's because, you know, in Sussex, kids are difficult. They're hard. But... <laughs> so those characters are the heart of the book. But what's fascinating is that there are so many people that we are engaged by and keeping track with. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the book, The Last Devil to Die. Yeah. Where did the bones of that story come from? What was your starting point? The starting point, well, two, two things really, is, is, and I was trying to do two different things in the book, and normally I just try and do one, with a yeah, little sub but I was trying to do two competing things, and it's, which is, but one thing, I, I had an idea about heroin being smuggled, okay? I just had a little thought, I had, I had a little thought, I wonder what would happen if and that was my starting point for the book. And this heroin gets smuggled in on Boxing Day and essentially causes chaos wherever it goes. Um, you know, people get killed. A friend of the Thursday Murder Club gets killed. So they have to track it down. So I had that plot, that little idea. Uh, and I wanted to talk more about Stephen's dementia, which, which has been, a, 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 you know, in the first three books. And my grandfather suffered from dementia. So I wanted to write something quite meaty about that as well. And I wanted those two things to dovetail and not feel like they were fighting each other. Um, so that was what I was trying to do. I never really plot anything. I never really think, and then this will happen, then this will happen. I'm usually about sort of two scenes ahead at any given time. But I knew those were the two beats I really wanted to hit. Uh, and so usually I just start writing scenes and here's another scene and here's another scene. Oh, this is an interesting new character comes in and they take the story in a different direction. So I've always got those beacons of the thing I want the book to be about which is this little MacGuffin of the heroine and, and, and Stephen. And then it just sort of 
unravels and unspools towards the end, and then I go back and make it look like I meant it all along. Well, that's, that's the key with crime writing, the reverse engineering. Well, that's fascinating because, you know, you think of more kind of conventional crime stories. You've got a hero, you've got a villain, and you've got four heroes. I can't remember how many villains. Like a lot. You've got a lot of... And also these kind of rich secondary characters to keep track of. So if you're not, you know, you're, it's not all on post-it notes in your study or plotted yeah. out, do you have to go back and do the kind of, do you have to look at it from that sense of buried clues and so on? Do you, if it, if it unfolds yeah. like this in this relatively spontaneous way? Occasionally, a few little bits I'll go back. But yeah, the biggest problem is every time I introduce a new character, I sort of fall in love with them. Or, and if I don't fall in love with them, I cut them out and invent something new. So over the series of the books, the Thursday Murder Club, they're like a snowball and they've connected Donna and Chris and, and, and Bogdan and all these other characters and Victor from the KGB uh, who, who comes back for this book as well. So they've got all the... They've, the gang is enormous now, you know? It's like, it's like there's 15 Beatles. Um, and so for me, it's like, oh, I'd love to do a scene for so-and-so, and so I have to hold back on, uh, on those things. But, yeah, you, you sort of... There's a new character in this book who's based... Can I tell a, a, a true story from my mum's village? So there's a character in this book called Computer Bob. Uh, who, who knows about computers? And that's where the nickname is from. But it's based on, the character is not, but he does a thing right at the start of the book, uh, which there's a guy at my mum's village called John. Uh, and John is a computer expert. He's like 84, but knows everything about computers. So it's New Year's Eve, and my mum doesn't want to stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve. None of her neighbours do. None of us do, if we're honest. You know, so, but, so they don't really do New Year's Eve. So John sends a message to everybody saying, meet me in the lounge at 8 p.m. We're going to have a New Year's Eve party. And my mum's like, oh, okay. I mean, listen, it'll be, it won't be the same, but let's do it. So they all go along, all carrying booze, every single one of them. So they turn up, there's a big TV in the corner, and John's showing an old sitcom or something like that. And then at 8.30, John has hacked in to Bulgarian television... And Bulgarian television is three hours ahead of UK time. And so he is showing the Bulgarian New Year's Eve show. And so they're all watching this. They all count down from 10. You know, the fireworks go off. They all sing Old Lang Syne. And my mum said, I was in bed by 9.30. I, I think it's an interesting precedent. Isn't that great? And I mean, John, John, John let me uh, use that in the, in the book as well. So that's my tribute to him. So if we think about all of these, this richness of characters, and I, 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 the police characters are really interesting because mm. they've been with us from the beginning, um, again, in a more conventional structure. It'd just be their story. They'd just be running everything. Um, and in The Last Devil to Die, both of them have got fantastic romantic lives mm. going, and they've also gone completely rogue. Yes. They've been completely infected by the Thursday murder I'm afraid so. I think that's the thing. There's a, there's a particular combination of Joyce and Elizabeth which makes them absolutely irresistible. Like, if one doesn't get you, the other will. Uh, and, yes, an, an awful lot of people have been drawn into their, uh, into their ambit. And, again, it's that thing of, like, I can't really do anything about them. You know, I can't really beat them. Can't arrest my way out of that. Exactly. So I, 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 might, as well, I might as well join them. Uh, and, you know... 
Thursday Murder Club's attitude to everybody, whether they're police officers or criminals, is exactly the same, which is, how can I get you to do the thing I want you to do? And they always find a way. And if well, Joyce and Elizabeth can't do it, Ibrahim will do it. And on very, very rare occasions, Ron will do it. Not often, though. Well, he doesn't need to, does he? He's got everybody else doing it. Exactly. So one of the most enjoyable things about your books is that they are so full of light and shade that, on the one hand, incredibly funny. On the other hand, people dying all the time. Sometimes people we like, sometimes people we don't like. Yeah. But you're also going in this direction. There's a lot of emotional depth. There's a preparedness to talk about the big questions of life, about death, about love, often in the voice of Joyce. Yes. Um, she gets away with a lot. Yeah. yeah. And also the dark side of ageing, that yeah. it's loss of ability, loss of people, all of these kinds of things. Um, one of the things that carries us through that great range of things is how funny the books are. And I just thought that it would be nice to do show, not tell, when we're talking about comic writing. And I know you don't usually read things. I never I, read things. You never read things. Oh, unless it's something by me. I read that. Like, yeah. I <laughs> no, I'll read, I'll, read, I'll read something. Given it's Australia, I never read... Honestly, I read, I read to the Germans, blank stares. They were... Okay, this top one. Okay, so this scene is... Oh, I think, that, I think that Chris and Donna and the Thursday Murder Club want to use the television room for something. Okay, I forget what, because uh, the television room is almost always empty on a Saturday evening. But on this particular occasion, a woman named Audrey, whose husband was a light-fingered grocer, is sitting front and center, insisting that she wants to watch The Masked Singer on the big screen TV. There is a short, fruitless negotiation. Money is offered. Though in retrospect, not enough money, given how much Audrey's husband has embezzled from Tesco before he was asked to take early retirement. Ibrahim tries to appeal to Audrey's better nature, but is unable to locate it. At one point, Audrey threatens to call the police, to which Chris replies, I am the police, <laughs> only to be given a withering stare by Audrey and told, in a t-shirt, I don't think so. <laughs> but that's the thing, I love, I, I, I love to write comedy, okay, but, I, uh, but equally I don't, I, I think it's quite difficult to mix comedy and crime novels and I've, I've always thought that, so when I was writing the first one, I was thinking, whatever you do, try not to be funny. Just don't be funny. Come on. Uh, and so I, I have a rule, which is I'm not allowed to do one-liners, but if something comes from character, then you can put it in. And if something comes from character, then, you know, everything there is character. Chris does wear a T-shirt, and he shouldn't. He's a police officer, for goodness sake. Um, so hopefully it doesn't drag you out of the story. Uh, so the characters make me laugh a lot, and I put them in situations which are going to make me laugh. The second I send someone into Joyce's flat with a gun, I know it's scary, but also I know it's going to be funny, because when I start that scene, I don't know what Joyce is going to do, but I know she's going to do something, and by the end of it, I'm going to be entertained by that. So yeah, my, my rule is, if comedy comes from character, then character stays consistent, 
And if character stays consistent, you can also look at the dark side of life, as you were saying. And you know, you can see the pain of life because I've never sort of said these people are jokes, these people are clowns, this is a pantomime. Uh, I'm just saying these are real people who make us laugh. And real people who make us laugh, bad things happen to people. And you know, we don't spend our life in a terrible mood or in a good mood. We you know we mix between the two a lot. And I try to do that in the book. You know, I try to go from funny to sad to funny to dark all the way through because I, I sort of feel that's how life is lived. But all the way through, truth is the, is, is the thing. I, I try and make those characters as true as I possibly can. And as you say, that brings you to dark places when you're older. And it's also fascinating that, that you're really connected to these kind of um, big, big... The, some of the grim realities of life in, in Britain today. I mean, the whole premise of drug dealing. Loneliness, romance, fraud, living with dementia, these big dark things. Is that important to you for it to feel tied into that reality? Oh, 100%. Because, you know, I get the joy of the fun of it. And I get the joy of Elizabeth saying, go and arrest me. Okay, so I get all of that. And, you know, I'd, I, need, I, I, I want to show something about the world. I want to talk about the world. I want to... We live in a world now where we're constantly told we're at each other's throats, you know, and we're not, is the truth. It's just, it, it makes money for people to say that we are. And eventually that will become true. Uh, and so I try and fight back in my tiny way. And the books all the way through, every single book is about the empaths trying to beat the sociopaths, you know, all the way through. And, you know, my grandfather, who's a police officer, and, and was the hardest man you'll ever meet. I mean, so tough, but also the kindest man you would ever meet. He would do anything for you. And it just it had real kindness, but real strength. Uh, and I think we're told at the moment that the world is absolutely split between kind people, us snowflakes, and strong people who get stuff done. It's the strong be the kind, and it's nonsense. You know, the people you want running the world are the people in the middle who are kind and strong. And that's the message I try and get across in these books without ever lecturing, because no one's ever interested in a lecture. But I think we have to reclaim some of the kind of wonderful things about what it is to be a human being from the people who are trying to make money from us, telling us that being a human being is, you know, about avarice and about treading on other people. Now, we've got a lot of questions from you here. Uh-oh. And, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of them that, that uh, you've kindly been telling us which ones you think are most interesting. Oh, if, I mean, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Uh, if you're looking at that and you've got, like, no likes. Mm. Well, we, you know, we're not even seeing that on this screen. We're at the ones that have, you know, been, been seriously, seriously recommended. Let's do the worst ones. No, let's do the... Well, I was fresh to this experience of Slido from our event during the Writers' Festival with Sam Neill, where I was backstage moderating the questions and I just had to delete a million requests for Sam Neill, would you go on a date with me? <laughs> would you meet me at the pub? What kind of restaurant would you like? Should we go out for lunch? So these one, those ones will not be appearing here, sadly, for those of you who have submitted them. Although, Sam, if you are here, yes, I will go to the pub with you. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I do feel for anybody who observes Sam Neill's Instagram, you might need to do something, you might need to be, you know, making a little movie of yourself doing something really Sam mm. Neillish 
to, to get his attention. <laughs> Something Joyce... Sam Neelish. Oh. Do you mean you mean like chasing a dinosaur? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it it could be singing a song to the piglets who've just been born on the front. Like, there's so much, so much interesting rustic life in New Zealand on that Instagram account. If Joyce was a contestant on Pointless, yes. What topic would she love to come up in the final round? Oh, God, that's a good question. Probably um, Cakes of Marks and Spencer's 1995 to 2008, I would think. Or, or, you know, or even the Aldi versus Waitrose in the snacks department. Yeah, exactly. Do you guys have Colin the Caterpillars over here? This is a huge thing. So Marks and Spencer's have got a, a chocolate cake called Colin the Caterpillar which is sort of, it's really good. It's like a Swiss roll, but with Smarties for eyes. I know I'm not making it sound good, but it is. But now Aldi have Cuthbert the Caterpillar and Lidl have Cedric the Caterpillar. And M&S took them to court and said, this, you're copying us. And they go, that's not, it's a different name. They got away with it. They won as well. Lidl, unbelievable. Anyway, listen, that's not, I know that's not what you wanted to hear from that answer. But unfortunately, that's why Joyce couldn't come on Pointless because she'd be talking about that for half an hour and we'd be... Uh... If you had to go on a long car ride with one of the Murder Club members, who would you choose and why? Oh, a long car ride. That's a good question. I think... I mean... Hmm. Hmm. I mean... God, that's a really good question. Joyce would have the best snacks, for sure. I think Elizabeth would insist on listening to Radio 3, so I couldn't handle that. Um, maybe Ron, because we could just put the football on and we wouldn't have to talk. But it, and Ibrahim is sort of a bit like me, in that he'd just be looking at the map the whole way, just going, OK, we've moved half an inch. OK, that's interesting. There's a left turn coming up, which we're not taking. <laughs> Good, we didn't take it. Excellent. That's, uh... And you can't have two of those people in the car. Why do you think that the series has such good cross-generational appeal? And that's from Rachel. I mean, honestly, that's the great, that for me, that's the dream. Because, you know, I've, I've written about the older generation. Uh, and, you know, if older, just older generation people were reading, what's the point? They already know they're amazing. So, you know, there's, there's nothing there. So it's so great to have uh, younger people, you know, men and women reading these books and sort of, and, and reckon, you know, not kind of going, these people are older, just going, oh, I love these characters. I love these people. I'd like to be these people. Um, why does it have generational appeal? I, I, I guess because it's funny and warm. I guess because, you know, it makes you laugh and cry. Uh, and it, it's just, it's got short chapters, you know. That's... <laughs> And that, that wasn't deliberate. That's just my attention span. I, I, ha, I have to try and write a chapter a day, otherwise I get, you know, I, I can't... If, God, if I had to leave a chapter halfway through, I just, my brain wouldn't allow it. I'm so goal-oriented. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think it's got lots of things that, that mean it, it, it's sort of, you know, a joy to read and talk about. And, it, you know, it does raise questions. You know, and it does mean, you know, and it's lovely seeing different generations of people reading the same book and being able to talk about some of the things that, that happen in the book as well. So that, honestly, it brings me such pleasure. And I think there are also, there's, there's some of those funny conversations in the, the, the cross-generational the, the, the yeah. cross banter between the characters or between Donna and her mother. That yeah. Joy, I, love, I love writing Joyce and her daughter. Yes, uh, that's my very funny. My favourite scenes to do. Uh, it's essentially me and my mum. And, and I get to the end of the chapters and I think, 
Richard, you're Joanna, you awful man. You awful <laughs> human being. What do you put your mum through? And then my mum will say something particularly annoying. I go, oh, that's why. That's why I do it. Um, why is there a fox on the front cover of each of your books? What is the significance? Uh, it's a good question. Well, the, the, the fox plays a very important part in the plot of the first book, which almost everyone forgets because no one remembers plots of books. That's the secret they don't tell you. People remember characters, they don't remember plot. Um, and when we were doing those front covers, uh, I, I wanted, you know, name, name, and something in the middle, just a little something, so I wanted it to be simple. And the fox seemed perfect, because firstly, it's in the, in the book. And secondly, it's sort of, what is a fox? Is a fox a goodie, a baddie? Is a fox sly? Is a fox endangered? You know, it has an awful lot of connotations to it, and it's, it's, it's been a lovely kind of emblem for that series throughout. But yeah, so it is in, it's in the plot of the first book. So anyone who asked that question didn't read the book properly and has to go back and read it again. I think, it's a, I think the fox is called Scargill in the first book, I think, named oh. after Arthur Scargill. Yeah, yeah. We've got a couple of questions here um, from uh, Rachel, from Martin. Um, it's not about... the same Rachel as the other one. She can't have two questions. No, I differently that's, spelled that's, Rachel. That's, that's Rachel prejudice. We can't have that. Um, about, about the Thursday Murder Club movie question. Oh, now, yes. Steven Spielberg bought the rights to the first book. Yeah. Um, we know a film is in the works with the end of the SAG-AFTRA strike. Yes. Do we have news about the timetable, when this might happen? And yes. can you give us some incredibly hard-to-guess hints about who might be in it? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good way of doing it. So, yes, we're filming next year. Uh, I would say spring, you would say autumn because of your weird climate. I don't know, listen, you must name your seasons how you see fit. Uh, but sort of March-ish next year, we're doing so the director is on board, some of the cast are on board. Um, we can't say just at the moment, but yeah, so it's great that the actor strike has finished because we can finally go ahead. But anyone you'd like to see in it? Zander? You'd have, you'd, have to, you'd have to age him down a little bit. Judy Dench, I'd love Penelope Wilton is a good one. It's honestly, it's just noise now. I can't. Um, Helen, that was Helen. And Mirren. this is why Spielberg doesn't do it this way. This is why. <laughs> this is this is what casting directors do. They'll listen to this and they'll isolate different voices from the microphone. Uh, but yeah, we, we we do have one name signed up, which is which is a name that's often uh, suggested, which is very exciting. Wonderful. Well, we'll just have to I wait. I couldn't possibly comment. No. We'll just have to wait because presumably once they start filming, something might leak out. Um, <laughs> Again, another problem with old age. Now, sorry, I'm just laughing at this. Now that I've laughed at it, I have to read it out. Okay. Book two seems more visual than book one. Bogdan, Bogdan is also hotter. <laughs> what inspired you to involve in this way? What, what inspired me to make Bogdan hotter? I don't know. He is definitely hot. I have to say, the, the, the casting issue in that book is going to be how, how, how do you cast Bogdan? That's the, that's the hardest job. Yeah, he's... Um, yeah, he's, he's um, again, Bogdan, it's so funny, he was only supposed to be in one scene. You know, I was, I was doing a scene in the first book where one of the bad guys, Ian Ventham, I wanted to show he was a bad guy, so I thought, oh, I'll get him trying to stiff his builder out of money. And this builder was a Polish guy. Uh, and at the end of the scene, I thought, oh, you're great, this Polish guy. I thought, that's interesting. So I brought him back for another scene, and then he did another couple of things. 
I thought, oh, I, you, you're going to have to stick around. And, you know, he, he inveigled his way into the, uh, into the book. Which Is that correct use of inveigled? Uh, is it? Is yeah. that all right? Yes. Okay. Honestly, I took a leap there. <laughs> I, I absolutely wasn't sure. But um, I'm glad I did now. Thank you. Uh, so I, I often do that. These characters come in and I, I, I don't know they're going to be a big part. But yeah, he's, he's very much the fifth Beatle, Bogdan. Well, he's really, he's really interesting because in a way when I was thinking about what happens when you have these detectives, these mature age detectives, yes. all the great things, that, the great assets that they have. But in a way, he becomes Elizabeth's arms and legs. Exactly. He does a whole lot of, he's the enforcer. Yeah. He's the digger of graves. <laughs> He is, um, yeah. He has all he of is, these... He is the grouter of bathrooms. He's the grouter of bathrooms yeah. and swimming pools. Yes. But also, what is so lovely about it is he becomes her family. Yes, exactly um, that. In this incredibly, you know, it, 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 I think it's an example of that thing about that there's an emotional depth even to these things that start off completely Exactly, and intergenerational and his friendship with Stephen, which is very dear to me as well. So, yeah, all, all, all of that stuff is, uh, is, uh, is beautiful to write. Yeah. Your books, for, question from Anonymous. Uh-oh, where's this starting? Your uh, books, a um, couple of things. Your books are distinctly British, yeah. yet are hugely popular internationally. What do you think appeals to a global audience who might not know what Waitrose is, or, in my case, might not know what West Ham actually signifies? What, how do you explain the international appeal? Who knows, who knows what West Ham is? Or who that, there you go. They are, they, are, they are an appalling football team. Uh, in a, no, they're, With a very tasteless colour. They're great. Claret and blue. A lovely claret, claret and blue. What was the question? Oh, yeah. So, the, yes. The international appeal. They're so English. They are so English, not even sort of British. They're very, very English. Uh, and so it does surprise, you know, it's number one in Japan and Brazil and all these countries. So you think, well, but then I, I sort of figure if I read a Japanese book, I want it to be incredibly Japanese. You know, that's what I, I, I want to know about daily life. I want it to be, uh, you know, have, 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 you know, genuine authenticity. Uh, and so I think that that's the thing. I think people recognise that, you know, it's, it's, it's a proper, accurate reflection, uh, sort of, of, uh, of, uh, of Great Britain. My, my daughter speaks Chinese, and she read the Chinese version. The Chinese version is, like, twice as thick as the British one. I said, why is that... Why is it so long? And she said, oh, because half of the book is footnotes, because they explain everything. <laughs> they explain Fanta and Oliver Bonas and Sainsbury's Taste the Difference, and, like, everything. They give very detailed instructions about it. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> so it's... Uh, I do, so at some point, somewhere, there'll be a Chinese premier who, who, who understands wants, who instinctively cake. about the tiny WH Smith at Blackfriars Station. Of all the days of the week to choose for a murder club, why Thursday from Beth? That was your favourite question of all the questions. <laughs> That's the one. You were looking through all the lists. You go, yeah, do you know what, Beth? I would, li I would like to know that. That is, listen, I've got a lot of respect for the Australian people, but that, that, is, that is fucked up. I'm so sorry. That is, uh, and again, apologies. Um, it's because I think it's got an internal rhyme, Thursday and murder, so it sort of trips off the tongue. So I think that's why I called it Thursday. When I first thought of the idea, my mum's village, they had Tuesday knit and natter and kind of Wednesday art conversation. And I just, the phrase Thursday Murder Club came to me and it had a, a pleasing poetic ring. 
Uh, and books come out on Thursdays in uh, Britain, but I, I, I didn't know that at the time. But it was, it was, uh, that was handy. So perhaps the film will come out as well. Um, do you know, it turns out it was a brilliant question. So thank you. <laughs> you were right. I take back my objections. You were quite right, Australia. To be fair, I have to say that when I, that's the one that's currently got the most votes for it. It was 14. Okay. Listen, listen. It wasn't 140. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, okay. That's, listen, still more than anyone else. That's the group of 14 over there, isn't it? With, uh, all pointing to one of their friends. Crime writers are often asked about what the appeal of crime is to an audience. And, you know, and somebody like P.D. James was always saying, it's about order being restored in the world. Uh, at the moment, we're in a, a moment in popular culture where murder, crime, true crime is everywhere. And you even reference this, having Samantha and Garth listen to a true crime podcast. But at the same time, um, actual murder rates are dropping. In Britain, it's halved in the last 20 years. You know, but people you know, lead their lives with a huge sense of the presence of crime. Why do you think that is? It's interesting. I mean, I was over at the, at the Iceland Crime Festival recently. And Iceland, I think, has got about 40 murder novelists. Uh, and it had one murder in the last five years. Uh, so it's something in the psyche, and we've, we, you know, we've always been obsessed with murder. It's, it's sort of the, the the ultimate taboo, and I think there's something about us that recognises it probably isn't going to happen. You know, it's not like writing. There's a reason why we don't buy lots of books about burglary, you know, or shoplifting, because we know it's probably going to happen. Whereas murder, I think, by and large, unless we're unlucky, even statistically here. I think we're probably all in the clear. So I think if you write a story that people recognize BC could happen, but it's probably not going to happen to them, then I think that's people's kind of comfort zone. But no, I find it fascinating. I wouldn't know. I'm, I've always loved it. And you know, I think P.D. James is right. It is, we'd like to set up something terrible happening, but then it's okay in the end because we solve it. But there's, there's an awful lot going on. Uh, but it, listen, it's good that murder rates are coming down, uh, but maybe bad for my business. <laughs> well, I, I, I think not. I think these two things seem to be coexisting quite I'm doing, happily. I'm doing my bit to keep them up, I'll say that. <laughs> There's a lot of deaths in this new one. So, tell us, so we've come to the end of four Thursday Murder Club books. Yep. You've got a plan for a new series. Yes. Tell us about what is happening in that series. Yeah, so I think where well, when, when you get to the end of this book, you'll realise maybe they need a year off the Thursday Murder Club. So I've got this new book, which is sort of a mix between, I, I, I say it's Thursday Murder Club meets the Da Vinci Code, only because if you say that, the, the pound signs in the eyes of publishers go absolutely insane. And it's not really that is the truth. Uh, it's it's, it's, a, it's a, about a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law. The father-in-law lives in a sleepy Hampshire village, very sort of Thursday Murder Club-esque. Um, all he wants to do is stay in the village and do his pub quiz. He does not want to go anywhere. He used to be a detective, and now he wants the quiet life. His daughter-in-law is a close protection officer for billionaires, so she's always on private islands and in private jets and jetting off around the world. She gets embroiled in trouble, and the only person she trusts is her father-in-law. And so he is much against his uh, will, drawn into this world of, you know, he has to go on a private jet, and he's so furious because they don't have proper beer. And it's just like, this is, 
they've got like 57 types of vodka but they don't have the type of beer he wants. So it's, it's essentially, I, I just wanted to write a new series. And again, I wanted it to have a bit of charm and a bit of wit and to be about, you know, different people who love each other. Uh, but there's to be lots of murders in the middle of it. So I do that next year. It'll be a series unless it goes badly, in which case it's a standalone. I always meant it to be a standalone. <laughs> and then Thursday Murder Club will be back the, the year after. <laughs> and, and he'll be relying on your, our collective amnesia, if that is <laughs> yeah, the case. Exactly, yeah, Well. I, we can look forward to the movie. We can look forward to a new series. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming to talk to us this evening. It's a pleasure. And I've loved, I've loved being in Sydney. I was so happy to come out here. It's been a proper treat. Well, oh, I... I've got to go to fucking Brisbane tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> And he's going to be saying, you can bet that on stage or on screen in Brisbane, he's going to be saying something like, I had to do Sydney last night. No, I'm going to say Sydney is amazing. I've got to go to, I've got to, go to Melbourne tomorrow. <laughs> well, I have issued an open and an, a standing invitation to Richard to, to join us for the festival anytime because we would love to see him again. Um, so thank you so much to Richard. Thank you to Yasmin and Rebecca for dealing with whatever we brought. And before we go tonight, I want to give you a little sneak peek into the festival in 2024. Um, I want to let you know about something that we have happening, uh, a guest that we have coming to join us. Um, and uh, I'm very happy to announce that Bonnie Garmus, the author of Lessons in Chemistry, will be at the festival next year. So thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you again to Richard. Thank you, Sydney. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>